I suggest that we can prove the existence of God from the impossibility of the contrary. As Christians, we do not give up our intellect. The strongest evidence and argument for the existence of God is that without a belief in God, you can't prove anything. How can the law be material? That's the question I'm going to ask you. I would say no. And can you give me an example of anything other than God that's immaterial? Welcome to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. I'm your host, Elias Ayala, and here at Revealed Apologetics, Our goal is to equip believers to defend the Christian faith, and we want to equip you to do it in a way that is honoring to God and faithful to Scripture. So sit back, relax, get your thinking caps on, and let's dive into our topic for today. What he said, that's, yeah. (laughs) Is there a newsletter or, like, tough tough questions in the news today kind of thing? Do you post anything online? Uh, We have a blog at New York Apologetics. So you can go onto the New York Apologetics blog. You can also go onto Facebook. We have the New York Apologetics Facebook page. And we also have something called the New York Apologetics Network, where guys like this can post to the New York Apologetics page. So now you're going to get... different writings and different points of view from people throughout our state. Now, if you have questions, please email Eli, email me, email Ryan. We can either do a blog about it, video about it, and put it up. This way you can have it forever, forward it to whoever you need to forward it to, and just learn the answers. But that's a great question. As we get more and more people on board, obviously we'll have more and more answers and more and more blog posts, more and more ways to get the information into, into your hands. All right, uh, next question. Logic and reason, are they the same? And then there's two uh, um, quotes from scripture. God says, uh, come, let us reason together. And then uh, Paul says, uh, says that he reasoned with the people. So logic and reason, are they the same? Yeah, logic are the laws of proper thinking and reasoning is when those laws are employed in our thinking. Does that make sense? So the laws of logic are the laws themselves of proper thinking and reasoning is the actual process when we're using it. Um, logic doesn't have content. We put content and we put content into our minds, so to speak, and logic. When we reason, uh, our minds are kind of processing that through logic. Okay, so we think, and the laws of logic help us categorize and make sense out of that which we're thinking about. That process is the rational process. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with Eli. Um, Reasoning is the process of using logic, right. right? Now you can use logic in a good way or you can use logic in a bad way. 
So we can use logic and come to wrong conclusions, or we can use logic and come to right conclusions. And again, when we, when we uh, submit our thinking to Christ and we use the laws of logic that he's given us, that's going to be able to assess whether we've come to a, good, a, a right conclusion or a wrong conclusion. We, we test our premises. Like, um, uh, how's the, what's the one with so-and-so is a man? Socrates, Socrates all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Yes, do it, please. Yes, all men are mortal, premise one. Premise two, Socrates is a man. Logical conclusion, therefore, Socrates is mortal. Right, so each one of those premises we we evaluate. All men are mortal. Okay, is that true? If that's true and the second premise is true, then the third premise follows and is logically true. Right. But if that first premise is wrong, we can start off with a wrong premise, get the right second premise, and then come to a wrong conclusion. Right. The statement that, so, that all men are mortal is the content, right, in which we are applying logic. So logic are the laws, and we supply the content, and logic helps us categorize and make sense out of the statements that we're making. And so we want to follow the rules of logical thinking to come to logical conclusions. And of course, following logical um, rules can also, as he said, help us identify when there is uh, faulty reasoning. Mm -hmm. For example, um, someone will say something to the effect, um, God does not exist because evolution is true. Now, while it's true that I don't <laughs> believe in evolution, it does not logically follow that if evolution were true, atheism is true. You see the problem? Uh, you, you say, evolution is true, therefore, Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Well, that doesn't logically follow. All right, now, whatever you might think of evolution is irrelevant. The point is that the structure of that argument is not, uh, it doesn't have a logical conclusion. And so applying those logical thoughts to someone's argument, as well as your own arguments, help us to reach uh, proper conclusions and to identify faulty conclusions. Here's a way I'm going to show you how to just put this in easy context. It happens to me all the time. My wife brings something home that she bought. Honey, I see you bought a new whatever. Mm -hmm. How much was that? I bought it at Walmart. That's called a red herring. It's a logical fallacy. How much was it? It was on sale. We still haven't hit the conclusion. You see, she's trying to logic me out from, from the conclusion I'm trying to come to. So when your premises don't line up, you're going to get, come to a wrong conclusion. So you just have to go by the laws of logic and, and there's things called fallacies. Um, you can find them, just uh, type in logical fallacies online, you'll find a whole list of them. It pays to know those things. Right. To be able to identify self-refuting statements are important, kind of like identifying fallacies. So for example, use a practical one. Someone will say, uh, you know, the concept of God is so transcendent and beyond us that even if God did exist, we couldn't know anything about him. And so that's actually a, a statement itself which has logical problems because if God is so beyond us that we can't know anything about him, how do you know that about God? Namely, that if God did exist, he's the sort of God that we can't know anything about. And so to say that we can't know anything about God is to itself make a statement about God. And so that's a logical contradiction. Right. Another fallacy would be, um, you guys know who R.C. Sproul is? Okay. R.C. Sproul believes that the, uh, the Bible is, in, uh, is infallible. And somebody says, well, he's a Christian. Okay, that's called a genetic fallacy. Just because somebody who's a Christian said that the, that the Bible is infallible doesn't mean it's wrong. That's right. Right? So pointing to the person and saying, well, that so-and-so said that, that's not, a, that's not a refutation of the person's argument. You're not addressing his statement. 
whether he's a Christian, whether he's an atheist, whether he's a Hindu, if he said that the Bible's uh, infallible or, or inerrant, well, we have to we have to test that. We have to test what the what the actual uh, uh, substance of that premise is, not the person. Or if you say something to the effect that uh, Christianity is false because look at all of the evils that have been done in the name of Christianity, you know, we can just tip our head and say, okay. Evil has been done in the name of Christianity. Therefore, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That doesn't logically follow, right? The misuse of the Christian faith and the abuse of the Christian faith has no bearing as to whether the statements of the Christian faith are true. And so we're dealing with truth, not pointing out uh, the inadequacies of Christians throughout, throughout history. And so we want to be able to draw those logical distinctions as well. Apparently, we're going to be here all night for my daughter's just putting it out here. You've got a lot of questions. So. Um, all right. Uh, all right. Um, good? All right. All right. So the next question. Um, I didn't understand about God not having uh, any shape and fingers. What about Deuteronomy 9, 10, Exodus, Psalm 8, 3, uh, uh, the work of your fingers and about um, the Ten Commandments being written in Exodus? Who wants to... You want to go for that since that was your statement? Uh, sure, yeah. Um, we need to be very careful. Um, I was uh, at a stop and shop once, and I had a bunch of bags in my hand, and I was walking over to my car, and a guy came up to me and says, do you have a moment to talk? And I was like, <laughs> okay. And so um, I dropped all my bags in the car, and I was like, yeah, so what's going on? Uh, and he says, did you know that just as there is a God the Father, there is also God the Mother? Now, of course, he had no idea who he was talking to. I just looked like a regular shopper. In my mind, I was like, okay, let's go, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, and so uh, he pointed to, to passages in Scripture which applied feminine characteristics to God. Now, what's going on there? Well, God is not a woman, and God is not a man, right? Um, and if we're going to take those passages and descriptions of God literally and at face value, then we're going to have to say that God is also a bird since we hide under the shadows of his wings. You see, you have to understand that when you're interpreting the Bible, we have to understand what sort of literature and literary um, tools that are being used to make a certain point. In um, literary studies, you have something called an anthropomorphism, an anthropomorphism, and that's when you apply human characteristics to say something like someone like God. You know, the, the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. Well, God doesn't have arms. Right? He's a spirit, John 4, 24. He doesn't have a physical body. You have Genesis 1, 26, where it says that we are made in the image of God. And so clearly, we have bodies, and so God has a body because we're made in his image. Not so fast. That assumes that the image in which we are made pertains to the physical. In Genesis 2, 7, it says that God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into him the breath of life, and man became a living soul. The image of God is not the forming out of the dust of the ground. The image of God is the breathing into us and becoming a living soul. And so the manner in which we are made in the image of God pertains to those spiritual similarities that we have. God is a rational being. We are a rational being. God is a spirit. To a lesser degree, we are also spirits as well. So when we see passages like this, we need to be careful and recognize anthropomorphisms and also these ideas where it says God is seen in the Old Testament. Right? The Lord appeared to Abraham, right? Or God spoke to Moses face to face, or Jacob wrestled the angel and he says, Behold, I've seen God and lived. What's going on here? 
Can you see God? Well, it doesn't look like you can because in 1 Timothy 6.16, it says that no man has seen nor can see God. So you have now what seems to be an apparent contradiction in the Bible. In the Old Testament, you have no, uh, people seeing God. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, who knew the Old Testament very well, says that no man has nor can they. So what's going on? Well, there's another interesting theological term you want to become familiar with, and that is the term Christophany, a Christophany or a theophany. These are physical manifestations of God in the Old Testament. God often revealed himself in ways that men could see and interact, but that is not the true essence of who God is. It is kind of a God's attempt to kind of bend down and communicate with his creatures. Okay? And by the way, the Bible clarifies in John chapter 1 that no man has seen the Father except the only begotten God who is at the Father's right hand. He has made him known. If you know the context of John 1, that's in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In John 1.14, the Word became flesh. The Word is spo that's spoken of is Jesus. No man has seen the Father except the Word, who is the Son. He makes him known. So if no one sees the Father, who are people seeing in the Old Testament? I call this when Jesus photobombs the Old Testament. <laughs> Jesus is the second person of the Trinity that, that functions in the role of making the Father known and appears to people in forms that can be seen. Now, that doesn't mean that the second person of the Trinity has a form, but it is the task of the second person of the Trinity to actually participate in the revealing because that is what the job of the Son is. No man knows the Father except the Son and to those whom the Son chooses to reveal. That's great. I like the photo bomb. The photo bomb. Everything we read in the news is filtered, so how do we know the Bible, too, is not filtered? God is not a man that he should lie, right? All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, a rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Either the scripture is true or it's not, okay? When you read the scriptures and you see uh, the outworking of them in life, you see the fulfilled prophecies, you see the inner witness of the Holy Spirit testifying and confirming that the word is true to you, you can trust that word. Um, we, there have been people who've tried to prove the Bible wrong over and over and over and over, and they're never successful. In fact, lots of them become Christians, Lee Strobel, right? Um, J. Warner Wallace, some of, the, some of the best apologists in the country today um, tried to prove the Bible false or contradictory. So when we read the Bible, if it is truly God-breathed, it is divine. It is divine. The problem comes in with human beings who try to interpret God's word. Human beings are flawed. We're sinful at the core. It's our minds that are stained. So you might say, well, if the Bible is true, how come everybody can't come to the same conclusion? It's because we have the problem, not the Word of God. The Word of God doesn't change. Man does. So that's why Paul also tells us to be a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. So understanding God's Word sometimes takes work. In addition to that work, God has also blessed the body of Christ with pastors and teachers who have special giftings and talents who help interpret the word for us. Now, ultimately, we're going to be held responsible for everything we believe about God in, according, in accordance with his word. So don't just automatically take a teacher's word for it. Go back, test the scriptures, see if what he said is true. 
Okay? So either it's impossible for God to lie. We all agree with that. If, if it's impossible for God to lie and he said that the scriptures are God-breathed, they're divine, then they're divine. They're without error. There's also an important thing to recognize the logical fallacy in the question. Just because the newspapers are filtered, therefore the Bible's filtered? Mm. First, what do you mean by filtered? Is filtered mean false? So are we saying everything in the newspaper is false? There is uh, people who say we can't trust the Bible because it's written by man. Well, the, the premise there is that if something comes from man, we can't trust it. So can I trust the validity of whether or not the person who spoke that believes what they say? If I can't trust human sources, then I can't trust anything the objector is saying in regards to what he's, the point he's trying to make. The fact that the Bible is written by men does not logically necessitate its falsehood. A man can write an infallible book. You can make a book without any errors in it. That doesn't mean it's uh, inspired by God, but you can. You don't, you don't need to have divine origin to be infallible, okay? Now, we just happen to believe that the Bible is also inspired by God, right? We don't believe the Bible, you know, you know, came out of heaven and dropped out of the clouds onto our laps, right? The assumption is that because man err and the Bible's written by men, then the Bible must err. But what's the assumption? That God is not involved in the process, and that's a presupposition that they're bringing to their objection that you need to challenge, right? If God exists and he has superintended the writing of the Bible, do we have good reason to believe that the Bible has been preserved as it was originally written and as we have it now? Without the presupposition of God, then yeah, I would agree. Given normal human tendencies, yeah, we can make mistakes and lose the original message. But I don't grant that, that premise. I actually believe God is superintending the process. So you add the presupposition of God that actually helps uh, firm up the idea that uh, we have good grounds to believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Um, now, if the person doesn't accept that, then that's going to be another discussion. Why think God exists? And why think God has had a hand in the process of, of preserving Scripture and things like that? So we want to be able to identify the fallacy in the question. You can't trust that which comes from man. Well, that objection came from a man, so I don't trust the question. You see the problem? So we have to be able to turn those statements on its head to show the logical fallacy inherent within them. How would you answer someone who constantly says the universe meant it to be? The universe is pushing me that way, and that the universe <laughs> will work it out. Yeah, they're giving personal qualities to an impersonal thing called the universe, and so impersonal things can't mean anything. To mean something is to have intention, and intentionality is the property of persons. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense to say that my coffee cup intended to, <laughs> uh, you know, you know, whatever. You know, coffee doesn't spill. intend anything. Yeah, it, it's like you know, the, the coffee spills. Like, well, I didn't spill it. The coffee intended to spill, and so that's what happened. Impersonal things don't have intentionality, and what that person is doing is really just equating the universe with a personal entity, which is just. What the Book of Romans says, they're actually worshiping the creature rather than the creator. They're giving uh, personalistic qualities to an immaterial something that's not itself God, which is, which is problematic. So uh, when you say the universe made me do this or the universe meant, uh, that's just reflecting uh, a worldview that I think is, is incoherent because impersonal things don't have intentionality. Agreed. Um, and just think of the ramifications. This is called reductio ad absurdum. Take that argument to its logical end. I can use that excuse to justify anything that I want to do. The universe made me want to rob that bank. The universe made me want to cheat on my test at high school. The universe made me do this. You, you can use that 
for anything. And you could just throw morality out the window because if that's what the universe intended, how am I going to overthrow the universe's intention for my life? Follow? So once, once you uh, start blaming uh, or using that excuse, you can take it to a, a very, very unhealthy end. Couldn't, couldn't uh, a serial killer... Use that and say, well, yeah, the universe pushed me. In <laughs> Why did you kill that woman? The universe. <laughs> <laughs> the, oh, universe wow. <laughs> the universe pushed me in that direction. This is the way the universe um, uh, arranged my molecules in such a way and my DNA in such a way that I'm a serial killer. I can't help it. If the universe has these weird intentions, what intended the universe itself? We know that the universe didn't always exist. And so what brought the universe into existence and if the universe is not personal, then again, how does it intend anything? You see, it can't be God. It can't be equated to God because if the universe began to exist, it lacks the property of being eternal. It's created. Where did it come from? And was it created to be personal? Did a personal being create the universe uh, to be personal and intend things for you? That has problems with it as well. Um, this next question is a, a big question. So, so give me that. Why does God allow evil in the world? Okay. Um, I mean, I, 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 I would answer it. I mean, I'm just going to quote uh, uh, scripture because for, for everything has a purpose and God's purpose for, for uh, um, you know, uh, God allows all things uh, uh, for the purpose of the good, for, for the good of those who are called according to his um, purpose, so that there there is purpose in evil itself, uh, um, and that purpose is ultimately for the good of those who are called. That he's doing something through all of it, um, in which he is going to eventually be glorified through. Um, that would be my short answer. Now, there's a lot of other answers, mm -hmm. and we yeah. can get into other philosophical answers, but that would be the good one. Yeah, I think there is a mysterious aspect and a non-mysterious aspect to answering that question. On the one hand. Uh, there are reasons why God has allowed evil for which we don't know. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord and the things that he's revealed belong to us and our children's children. So there's an element as to why God allows particular evils. But ultimately, because God is not random, when he created the universe, he had a specific purpose in everything that he's created and allowed to, to occur. And so God has morally sufficient reasons. If the evil exists and God is good, then it seems to logically follow that God has good reasons for allowing it even if you don't know what those reasons are. And even if God told you what those reasons are, you might not even understand the answer to, to your question, since God's purposes involve much more things that, that extend beyond the specific evils that you yourself are experiencing. So um, there are a couple of ways you could answer this question. Uh, for one, uh, what is the sole purpose of man if not to, to uh, know their creator? It might be the case that in, in, the only way to fully know our creator is for God to allow evil. Because in the allowance of evil, that teaches us something about the perfect, righteous, and holy character of God and his hatred for sin. And so, again, that doesn't answer all of the difficult emotional questions, but it does answer the logical question that within an apologetic context often comes up, that if God is all good and there's evil in the world, therefore God is not all good, because if he's good, he'd remove the evil. But he hasn't removed the evil. So maybe he's good, but he's not powerful enough to remove it. You see? So uh, there is no logical inconsistency with God being good and they're allowing evil, since it could be the case, and I think it is the case, that God has good reasons for allowing it. Secondly, you can't even make the objection that there's evil in the world because without God, how do you know what's evil? You need, an, you need an objective standard. I would say that if evil is a problem, I would say that 
evil actually demonstrates the existence of God because it presupposes an objective standard of good by which to measure something good or evil. If God does not exist, what's evil is your opinion. And little Johnny down the road might have a different opinion than you do. How do we know which is which? On an atheistic worldview, there is no good and evil. There's just what happens in nature. So anytime the unbeliever brings up the issue of evil and suffering, um, they're already operating in Christian categories which give meaning to the very concept of evil. So I would say that evil demonstrates the existence of God and good demonstrates the existence of God, which is what I said at the beginning of the talk, that the proof for the existence of God is that without him, you can't prove anything at all. Yeah, I would also say, because you, you'll, you'll get people say, well, why doesn't God get rid of all the evil in the world? And I say, okay, if God was to get rid of all the evil in the world at 1.30, where would we all be? Right? If God was to rid the world of evil, what we, what we fail to realize uh, is the fact that we've contributed to the evil in the world. Right? Our hearts are stained by sin. We are sinners by nature. So the actions, words, thoughts that we bring into the world are evil. If we wanted God to get rid of all the evil, we'd be gone. So one of the reasons why God allows evil in the world is because he's merciful. Right? He told Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Did they die? They died spiritually. He left them alive. And then what? He restored them. Okay, so now we always, not always, uh, the book of Genesis always talks to us about the beginnings. And it's always a glimpse into what else is to come. If God allowed evil in the world uh, and stood back idly by and watched it happen, you might say, he's not a loving God. But the, the God of the Bible did not allow evil into the world and then sit and watch it perish. He actually enters into the world to suffer under the very evil that you and I brought into the world. So he comes into the world to suffer with us and for us. He actually puts himself on a cross and God pours his wrath out on Jesus to save people like us who are evil. So what does God do? He punches evil in the face and, <laughs> and annihilates it and says, I am here despite your evil and I'm going to save you even in the midst of us. So Jesus suffers with us and for us. And what does he do? He rises from the dead to prove that his payment to the Father was acceptable and he's overcome evil. There is a resurrection. You repent, place your faith and trust in Jesus and the evil of this world okay, will be defeated in Christ. He is victorious over evil. Now, when, when an atheist says, well, I can't believe in God, we've talked about this for a couple seconds, I can't believe in God because of all the evil in the world. Okay, so let's take God out of the equation. Does evil still exist? You haven't solved the problem. You've just eliminated one possible solution to the problem, right? So, if you take God out of the equation, like Eli said, now what is your ref reference point for good and evil? It becomes personal preference. You like Rocky Road, I like Butter Pecan. Who's right? You know, I like hugging babies, you like killing babies, or the other way around. <laughs> you know, that just becomes a matter of personal preference because there's no ultimate standard for good and evil. So if you eliminate God, you eliminate the standard for good and evil. Second, you eliminate any possible comfort that someone would take in knowing that God allowed this evil for a greater purpose. So you now might be taking comfort away from the person. You might also be taking away the possibility of future justice. The serial killer who rapes and kills 50 women, 
and then gets put in jail and dies. Is that really justice? Ultimately, in a world that God exists in, the world we live in, there is going to be ultimate justice to pay. There will be a consequence for that, and everything that was wrong in the world will be made right. Okay, so when you take God out of the equations, you may make things very, very worse. You may cause people to despair even more than they are right now. Because evil exists in the world, uh, it's, it's a function of the goodness of God, and it points to our depravity. But thankfully, he gave us a way out. He put his son on a cross to bear up under the very evil we brought into the world. What greater demonstration of love is that? God demonstrated his own love towards us that while we were sinners, when? While we were sinners, he died for us. While we were evil, he died for us. That is the greatest act of love we could ever see. And God orchestrated the whole thing. If you read Acts chapter 4, it was Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Jews and the Gentiles, all did what your hand predestined and foreordained to happen. That he put Jesus on the cross and crushed him in our place. When you look at the cross, you see the awfulness of sin and what it deserves. At the same point in time, you see the incredible love of a God who would sacrifice what he held most dear to save you and I. I Evil it, is not a problem. It's not a problem yeah. for God. It's yeah. a problem for the atheist. And yeah, uh, I remember yeah. listening to an interview. Uh, I don't remember who the the host was, but they were interviewing uh, Pastor John MacArthur, and they asked uh, Pastor John MacArthur, "Why does God allow uh, bad things to happen to good people?" And I think his response <laughs> was was very telling and emphasized really uh, the proper context in which we're to understand this question. He says, "Actually, that's the wrong question to ask." You shouldn't ask, why do bad things happen to good people? You should really ask, why do good things happen to anyone? Mm -hmm. You see, the assumption is that we're just these innocent people walking around and a bunch of bad things are happening to us. No, the fact that your life is finite is a constant reminder that death is knocking on the door of everyone because all of us have sinned and all of us deserve death. That's right. What did Jesus say when there were those who approached him about a, a tragedy that happened in his, in his day when this wall fell on, on these people <laughs> and they died? Jesus didn't say, well, you know, they were good people, but uh, and it, was a, you know, it was a shame that that happened. He says, no, listen, unless you repent, you too, you're going to die in your sins. The reality is we need to come to grips with how sinful we are and what our sin deserves and recognize that tomorrow is not promised to you and we need to do something with the gospel now. And so I think answering the question in that way really puts things in perspective. The allowance of evil and suffering is actually an extension of God's mercy. We know biblically, we've read the back of the book, that God will make all things right. But at the same time, if God removes all evil, he might just start with you. <laughs> or, you. Is, or you. Or you. Hey. Hey. I'm saved by grace, all right? Hey. <laughs> what Halo. Is, what is Halo. the difference between an axiom and a presupposition? Uh, an axiom is a fundamental starting point in one's reasoning. And it is, uh, it's not justified. It's a, just a starting point you start with. I'll give you an axiom. I exist. Right? If I, have, I, start, I start there. I exist. And then I build my reasoning off that. Okay? An axiom is an intellectual starting point that is not justified by an appeal to something outside of it. Okay? So if I were to say, I believe belief A. Well, how do you know A is true? Well, I'll give another argument by appealing to this other belief. Well, how do you know that belief is true? Well, then I appeal to something outside of that to demonstrate the truth. And you can't go back forever. Because if you go back forever, you'll never demonstrate why you knew the thing to begin with. You follow? 
So people need start uh, stopping points from which you just accept as a bare kind of starting point and then build everything off. An axiom is that starting point, and people have different axioms. Axioms are, by definition, unjustified. You do not justify them by appealing to something more authoritative than them, because if you do, then that's not your axiom. This other thing is. A presupposition is similar to an axiom um, in that it is an elementary starting point in one's reasoning, and for the most part, they're sort of like axioms. They're not justified by appealing to something else outside of them. But um, unlike axioms, presuppositions, some of them, can be justified um, and given a ground by appealing to its own necessity. All right, So axioms are not justified by appealing to something outside of it, but presuppositions can be justified by appealing to its own necessity. I'll give you an example. Logic. I presuppose logic. Logic is a presupposition that I have, right? It is, in a sense, axiomatic. I start not believing that logic is applicable, um, but I don't think it's just an unjustified starting point. It's justified by its own necessity. Deny it, and you have to affirm it, right? If someone says, I don't believe logic exists, well, you deny that. You needed logic to even formulate that sentence, okay? So the difference between a presupposition and an axiom is an axiom cannot be justified by definition, but a presupposition can be justified um, by an appeal to its own necessity. Okay, so that's the difference there. I'm sorry for the speaking in philosophically abstract terms, but you know, I didn't ask the question. <laughs> okay. All right, if another religion says they, that, uh, if someone from another religion says that they believe their religion is true by the impossibility of the contrary, how would you respond? I'll filter in. Right, right. Okay. So my argument for God's existence is that if he did not exist, you couldn't prove anything at all. I believe that God's existence is necessitated by the impossibility of the contrary. If you deny God's existence, you must actually assume things that only make sense if my God exists. Okay? Now what happens when you come across someone who says, well, my God, I, can, I could apply that the same way. Or even an atheist. My view is true by the impossibility of the contrary. All right? What you do at that point is um, we need to engage in what's called internal worldview critique. Are you saying that your worldview is true by necessity and to deny it is to affirm it? Well, let's take, um, let's take the atheist, for example. Um, what happens when I deny atheism? Do I shoot myself in the foot logically? No. Because atheism could claim, for example, that it's true by the impossibility of the contrary, but that can't be the case if atheism itself is contradictory. If your view are the preconditions for knowledge, then your view must be logically coherent. But I would try and show that atheism as a philosophical worldview is logically incoherent. A competing religious perspective, um, whatever that might be, Mormonism, okay? If Mormonism is your view and you're gonna say that it's true by the impossibility of the contrary, in order for that to be the case, it needs to be logically coherent. But if Mormonism is not logically coherent, then it can't be true by the impossibility of the contrary. So what would I do at that point? I would try and show that Mormonism as a worldview perspective is actually logically incoherent, and it is for various reasons. One, um, Mormonism teaches that, uh, that the Bible is true. They believe the Bible, right? You talk to a Mormon, they'll carry their King James Bible under their arm. But on the other hand, they believe in the Doctrine and Covenants, the Book of Mormon, and other various sources. And within the teaching of Mormonism, they believe that Joseph Smith saw God the Father, 
They saw God. He saw God the Father. God the Father has a human body of flesh and bones. God used to be another man on another planet. He had to earn his own godhood. And when he became a god, he became a god of this planet with his, you know, his goddess wife who had sec uh, celestial sex and had spirit babies in which we now are, you know, his offspring. Okay? That's what Mormonism teaches. Now, the problem with that is if Mormonism teaches that Joseph Smith saw the Father, but they affirm the Bible, which teaches in 1 Timothy 6.16 that no man has seen God, nor can they, and that no one can see the Father. Now you have a conflict between the claim of Mormon teaching and the Bible, which they claim to affirm. And so if they're going to be true by the impossibility of the contrary, they can't have these internal contradictions which actually invalidate their own perspective. And so you can do that with different um, perspectives. There's a teaching in Islam, for example, that talks about the transcendence of God. Um, and he is so transcendent and beyond us that nothing in human language can rightfully describe him. Well, if you think that about um, Allah and you think that your view is true by the impossibility of the contrary, tell me a little bit more about Allah. Where did you learn about Allah? Well, by the, uh, we learned about Allah through the Holy Quran. Okay, and what language was the Holy Quran written in? Well, it was written in Aramaic. Is Aramaic a human language? Yes. I thought you just got finished telling me that nothing in human language can rightfully describe Allah. <laughs> if it's true that nothing in human language can rightfully describe Allah, then the Quran does not tell you anything about Allah because it's written in human language. So you have these internal conflicts which actually invalidate the, um, the statement that that worldview is true by the impossibility of the contrary. And in like fashion, when we claim that the Christian worldview is true by the impossibility of the contrary, at that moment, we need to be knowledgeable enough within our own faith that we're able to explain why the God of Scripture can be the preconditions for logic, can be the preconditions for the intelligibility of history, can be the preconditions for the intelligibility of mathematics, and all of the edifice of human knowledge altogether. Our God is a God of knowledge. He is coherent. He is rational. And I would argue that these other positions just don't have the meat to um, hold uh, all of those things under a strong foundation because they are not built upon the rock. Yep. <laughs> so in other words, just help them to prove it. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, now, but, you see, but you see, the reason why I, just, I didn't say that is because, <laughs> that be, because, because here's, the, here's the thing, here's the thing. Someone says, how do you know God exists? And I say, well, he exists by the impossibility of the contrary. You have to be, you have to be careful that that doesn't make sense and as a bare statement. I think the person deserves an explanation of what you mean by that. Mm. You know, what do you mean Christianity is necessarily true? What do you mean Christianity can't, can't, uh, can't ever be falsified or anything like that? We need to actually give them some meat and engage them in conversation and allow them to ask the questions and, and we have to clarify what we mean by various things. We can't just assume that, you know, my Bible's correct and everything else is false and just stop there. Now you're, at that point, you're just making assertions and you're not really demonstrating the truth of your perspective, which we're called to do. So what do you say to a person that claims animals have the, the same rights as humans and they express that animals are oftentimes purer or better than humans and so should be treated, I guess, better than humans? Well, animals are not created in the image of God. We are uh, image bearers. Uh, we are image of God. Animals are not. It doesn't mean that we get to misuse and mistreat animals in an inhumane way. However, God has provided animals, uh, and I think it's in Genesis chapter 9. He has given us the animals for food. Um, again, that doesn't mean we can mistreat animals. I think there's a, there's a line we can cross. However, there's a vast difference between 
the animal kingdom and humanity. Humanity bears the image of God. Therefore, we have a distinct status that the animals don't have. Um, we can worship God in spirit and truth. Animals can't. You know, they're, they're instinctual, whereas we have, we have a will, intellect, and emotions given to us by God such that we can exercise that will to worship him or deny him, right? Mm -hmm. So animals don't have that option. Again, that doesn't mean we get to mistreat animals and do whatever we want to them and, and treat them in inhumane and cruel ways. In fact, that would be a reflection of our hearts, not theirs. So are animals purer th than humanity? I would say that animals do what they do. Um, humanity does what is. Animals aren't sinful. Animals don't sin. So in that sense, yeah, they're pure, but neither do plants. If you eat plants, that's a problem, right? So uh, plants, animals, all that, they don't sin. The only creatures on uh, earth that sin is humanity. So there's a vast difference between the two. And again, I, don't, I just don't think you can treat animals cruelly. I also think, can you repeat the question again? So what would you say to someone who claims that animals have the same rights as human beings? And that oh. because animals are pure, uh, that they're better than humans, they, then they should be treated as such. By what standard? How do you know? Do you have like this little meter that says, okay, you're pure and you're impure? How do you measure the purity of an animal in comparison to a human being, right? In order for, for one to say that animals are, are, are more pure than human beings, you need some kind of standard or measurement. And you have to ask the question, which worldview perspective are you coming from? Well, if you're a Christian and claiming that, then that statement is actually in conflict with what the Bible teaches, because the Bible says that we're made in the image of God and there is actually a clear difference. And if you're a non-Christian non, non and atheist, then by what standard do you measure Who's pure, <laughs> right? Uh, it's just your opinion that animals are more pure than, than human beings. If you say uh, animals have a more of a right to live than we do, says who? You? You're not appealing to divine authority, so why should I listen to what you have to say in regards to the purity and, and the, um, you know, the superiority of the animals over human beings? Again, you're just making the claim at that point. I hope that makes sense. And I could say, well, you know, um, I think uh, that animals are more, um, you know, valuable than, than human beings. Okay, thank you for your opinion. But how do you know that? How do you know that? You're not, you're not getting that from the Bible. And if you're not a Christian and you're an atheist, then you're just giving me your opinion. There's no objective standard by which you're actually using to make those judgments. And so again, answer the fool, don't answer the fool. Don't borrow those assumptions because they're self-refuting. But then hypothetically grant the truth. Let's, let's suppose, uh, let's suppose, you know, I grant like, okay, so let's talk about who's more valuable. Well, in a world without objective standards of rules and measurement, how do we even know that an animal's more pure or more um, worthy of living than a human being? That's just your opinion. And by the way, in a world without God, what if little Johnny down the road disagrees with you? Who's right? Then you're, you're right there, you're at the mercy of the opinions of every single person on the earth who disagrees with each other. There is no external standard that lords it over these other multiple standards, giving us this, you know, uh, an absolute standard by which to measure um, those things. I, I, would, I, I, I should have added uh, a question to ask the person who would ask that question is, what is a right? What do you mean by a right? Yeah. A right is a just claim to something. And where do rights come from? For human beings, rights come from God. And that's very, very important because in this world uh, that think, that believes in evolution and survival of the fittest 
if one group of people is stronger than another and overtake them, now those people get their rights from the stronger people. The stronger people now say, well, think of what happened to the Jews in Nazi Germany. They, they deemed that they were animals, that they were not human. So it was their right to kill them. So rights, first of all, come from God. Second of all, it's, it's a just claim to something. And I had something else, another line of thought I was going to go down. Well, all, people often say, well, animals were here first. <laughs> here's, here's another one. To which we respond, God gave dominion to man. Well, well that's true. But, but again, I, I wouldn't imagine a Christian is suggesting that animals are more valuable than image bearers of God. I would say, if someone were to say, well, animals were here first, here's a brilliant response. So, what standard says that if you're here first, you have more priority and rights to something? If God does not exist and has not created us and imbued us with these values and rights and things like that, who's to say? You see what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, and, and this, is, this is what came to mind, because usually people who are avid animal rights activists just ask them a question. Are you pro-life when it comes to the issue of abortion? All of a sudden, they're pro-choice when it comes to the issue of abortion, but pro-rights when it comes to animals. So now, wait a second. Here's a, here's a clear contradiction in what you just asked me. Don't animals have as much rights as humans? Now you're okay with killing human babies in the womb. That's okay with you, but not, not puppies that are in the, in the mother's womb. So you can just highlight the contradiction in their worldview by asking that, that question. Before we get any, go any further, are you pro-life? No. I think an interesting thing, too, uh, the chances are it's not the Christian who's going to ask that question. If the no. person's an atheist, um, look, look at the interesting thing. Uh, most people believe that human beings are animals. <laughs> so, so, so if I'm an animal and the animal in the woods are, is an animal, we're both animals. So if animals have a right to live, you're just saying we all have a right to live. <laughs> yeah, you, can't, you can't gauge which one's more valuable because we're all animals. And it's the, only the strong survive. That's right. And, and it's evolution. It's very interesting, too. An atheist will often ridicule the Christian. You guys believe in a book where there's talking snakes and talking animals. I'm like, dude, you're an evolutionist uh, for the most part. You know, they, if they hold evolution, you believe we are animals. And here we are having a rational conversation. Your great-great-great-great-grandmother was a squid. <laughs> I, 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 I would, the only thing I would say is I, I think this, this question, too, um, does come often from within mm. the, the church, um, where you do have Christians too that uh, will try to, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, try try to use the very same objection and mm -hmm. try to somehow root it in Scripture. So I think you, you have both. And, and I think uh, what you just said right there. What do you do when there's a conflict between two people and both those people hold the Bible to be the ultimate authority? You go to the Bible, and I think you can show clearly that there's a distinction of value between animals and human beings. You know. Usually the question is, you know, my pet died, am I going to see my pet in heaven? Yeah. And I say, if it's a dog, yes. It's if, it's, if it's a cat, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yes. I'm kidding. Yes. I have cats. Um, I have cats. <laughs> yes. Can I? Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, can we go back to the evil um, question you had before? Because sure. uh, I was thinking, um, the, not I was thinking, the Bible says that um, all good things come from God. And then I think evil doesn't come from God. I think the enemy comes, the Bible says the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So it's gonna, you know, all the bad things gonna happen is because of him, he's at work. Because when you look at that in Revelations where he says the when the war broke out in heaven with the Michael, the 
archangel and all the, the enemy of the dark world, it, the Bible says, woe to earth because the enemy coming down. So when it comes, the devil is coming to do his work, you know? And then um, Isaiah also said, Isaiah 14, I think 12 or 15, even Luke 10, 17, I think 15 or 17 to 18, there's a Jesus say, and Luke say, I saw the angels fall down of heaven. Isaiah saw him fall down of heaven. So here, I would, the, the question, the way that it was worded, uh, I think was the right way to word the question. The question was, why does God allow evil? Um, so when your, your references, like in regards to the devil and Satan and stuff like that, I think it's important to recognize uh, the devil is God's devil. Uh, when you look at, uh, for example, right in the opening of Job, uh, before the devil's allowed to do absolutely anything or even touch Job, he has to seek the permission of God. Um, so that's why the question is being worded, uh, why does God allow evil? And uh, there is a distinction between God, being, uh, 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 between God allowing it and God being the author of it. Um, I think we, we do make that distinction. So we're not saying God did the evil, um, but, we, but he does permit the evil. That was uh, so. They, I want to direct them to. So, if if you guys get a chance, I would go to the reformrookie.com. You, he, Anthony, they just did an entire series on uh, um, on uh, Calvinism and the uh, uh, doctrines of grace. And there, they really kind of work on sovereignty and what free will is and and everything else. But do you, while we're here, we got some time. Sure. So I, I have one more question here, yeah. um, but we can answer that first. You guys want to tackle that real quick, and then sure. we'll jump to here. Uh, the, the Bible says that we're by nature sinners. Okay, um, any actions that we do because of our nature will be sinful. We cannot change our nature. So anything that I do uh, inside of God because of my nature would be sinful. Now that doesn't mean that I can't do good things to other people here on earth, but it's a relative good. It's a horizontal good. It's not a vertical good. Remember the scripture, I think it's Isaiah 64, says, All my good works are filthy rags before God. So I have nothing to bring to him that are, that's pure or clean. So what has to happen is my nature has to change first. Now because my nature comes in, I'm born sinful and my nature is, is sinful, um, my desires therefore follow. And my desires are sinful. So when I look at my choices and I look at the things that I do, that's not the root of the problem. That's the, um, uh, the outgrowth of the problem. The real problem is my heart. My heart needs to be changed. So that's what the gospel is. The gospel is God pulling out a heart of stone, inserting a heart of flesh with his laws written upon them. So now I am a new creation. I'm born of God. I have a new heart. And when I say heart, I, I should point to my head like, like Eli did. It doesn't mean my beating heart, okay? It's a, new, um, it's a new spirit that lives within me, okay, with new desires, righteous desires. Now uh, I'm given the opportunity to make good choices and bad choices, and now I have the ability to do it. And because God's spirit is in me, he convicts me, and I, I start moving in the right direction. Now, once you're justified, once you're put in right relationship with God, God and declared righteous 
which is a legal term, once you're declared righteous by faith, now the process of sanctification happens where you're going to live out every single day of your life until you die and then the glorification part happens. Now all of us, um, Philippians 1 says, he who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it, right? We all live between work begun and work complete. We are all in process. Nobody has arrived yet. So there are still things in my life that I'm working out, okay, because God is working in me and I'm a Christian. When we say that God saves sinners, that's justification, sanctification, and glorification. Once I'm put in right relationship with him and he has his spirit inside of me, now what am I? I am a child of God with God's spirit inside of me, and Jesus says I'm a slave to righteousness. So whereas for, first I was a slave to sin, now I am a slave to righteousness. But in both cases, I'm a slave, right? I want to do these things. So now that I'm a Christian, I want to please Jesus. I want to follow him. And as you feed that desire, it grows. So what you feed will lead. Now, you could be a Christian and a nominal Christian, or you could be a Christian and a strong Christian. Why? Because you're pursuing God. You're sitting under the means of grace. You're taking communion. You go into fellowship. You're listening to the preaching of the word. You're reading your Bible. You're studying yourself to be approved. And when you do that, you're showing faith, and God is now going to continue that process and grow you more. So either way, you don't have an entirely free will, and I really can prove it. How many people want to sin next week? No one. How many people will sin next week? Everyone, see? You're not as free as you think. We're not free in an autonomous uh, fashion where we can do whatever we want. As much as I want to fly off the roof and flap my arms, I can't do that. I don't have the natural ability to do that. In the same way, Free will is really a function of moral ability. And we don't have the moral ability to walk perfectly in this life apart from God working in and through us. Does that help? Yeah. All right. Um, is there a difference between soul and spirit? And if so, mm. how can we dif dif uh, differentiate it? Yeah, um I don't want to take an absolute stance on this. You have uh, two different views uh, amongst theologians. Uh, there is the view known as uh, the trichotomous view and the dichotomous view. And I do apologize for the million dollar words. Um, but the dichotomous view understands that um, man is made up of, of two, th two things, essentially, um, body and soul. And the dichotomous view will equate spirit with the soul. So spirit's just another word for soul. Where on the trichotomous view, you have the idea that man is composed of a physical body and a spirit and a soul. And they make a distinction between those, those two. So you have those different uh, perspectives that differing Christians will kind of debate over those, uh, those non-essential areas. Um, as to the specific differences, say if you are a, um, a trichotomous, I'm not sure exactly the differences and distinctions they make. Me personally, I'm a dichotomist. I think... Um, man is body and soul, and soul is just another word for spirit. I am aware of those passages which speak about spirit and soul and things. We can get into that. But uh, those are the different views uh, there, from my understanding. I'm a dichotomous also. Okay. All right. All right. And then the, the last question is, uh, where, are we gonna, where can we get the, the, web, uh, uh, the information from today? Uh, um, 
So I'm going to be posting all of the talks from today on, on my website, which is uh, Truth in Life, uh, Truth, the letter N, life.net. Uh, I had to think about that for a second. Truthinlife.net. So it'll be available there. Um, it'll also be that I'm sure we'll, uh, put ten, yeah. uh, links to them. Uh, Eli, why don't you give everybody where they can reach you? I'm going to leave these out here. These are my cards. Um, again, I've, uh, I'm the founder of Revealed Apologetics. I have my phone number here, my email. The website is still working on, but you could actually um, email me any of your questions. And I have a podcast that you could download for free um, on iTunes called Revealed Apologetics. And basically, I talk about apologetics, theology. Um, and if you have any questions, I'll use your question as the content of my next episode so that you can constantly be listening to things that are relevant to your particular context. So if you want, um, I'll leave these, uh, where should I leave them? Uh, anyway, yeah, I'll put them on the table and you could, uh, you could reach out to me. Um, and uh, most of my stuff is on the podcast. You can look me up on Facebook. I do videos covering um, questions on apologetics and things like that. And I think this is a helpful way that if you're not sure how to get into apologetics, Watching videos is super helpful, mm -hmm. right? Just look going, you know, when you're when you have some free time, look, watch a 10-minute video, 20-minute video, or an hour, you know, conference that's on YouTube or something like that. Those are helpful ways to kind of just dip your feet into this uh, topic and really just equip yourself with some tools that you can use in whatever context God has placed you in. So, uh, Anthony, you want to? Sure. Well, you can go to the website uh, www.newyorkapologetics.com. Uh, we got a blog up there. We have videos up there. So if you want apologetic material, you can go there. You could also email me, Anthony at NewYorkApologetics.com. I also host something called the Reform Rookie. Uh, it's basically Reform theology for people who are just new to it or young. So if you wanted to check out our stuff there, that's where we have the conference videos that we did uh, two weeks ago. Um, so you can check it out, ReformRookie.com or NewYorkApologetics.com. Email reformrookie at gmail.com or newyorkapologetics at gmail.com. Both work. And uh, my email is truthinlife.net at gmail.com. Um, so uh, are there any other questions? Before? No other questions? Come on, Dan. No? <laughs> <laughs> when do you guys want to pray? Sure. You want me to pray? Um, I'll pray. It's okay. <laughs> Uh, Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, Lord. We just thank you for uh, this morning and this afternoon that we uh, have been able to come together and to talk about this uh, vitally important topic. I pray that, um, that the people uh, who have come here to, to learn. Thank you very much for listening to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. Uh, if you have any questions um, that you would like me to cover in a podcast episode, uh, please email them to me to revealedapologetics at gmail. Dot com. Also, we very much um, appreciate your prayers, and if you wish to support Revealed Apologetics financially, uh, you can by doing so. Um, we have a, a PayPal account set up. Uh, you can um, uh, help us out financially um, at paypal.me slash revealedapologetics, paypal.me slash revealed apologetics and that would be uh, greatly appreciated if, if you were able to help out financially if not um, we we definitely would appreciate uh, prayer um, and um, once again if, if you have any questions uh, that you'd like me to cover revealed apologetics at gmail.com thank you so much for listening take care and god bless